Welcome to Breakout Startups, a podcast about the most prominent entrepreneurs and investors building the companies that transform our lives. My name is Tomer Federman. I'm an entrepreneur and an angel investor in early stage enterprise and fintech startups. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech and previously was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on the Breakout Startups podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of Breakout Startups, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. Okay, let's do this. Really excited to welcome to the show today, John Linden, the co-founder and CEO of Mythical Games. John, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I really, really am happy to be here. To kick things off, John, what is Mythical Games? Yeah, so Mythical Games is a gaming, a gaming tech company, um, really focused around the principle of ownership in games and what that does to the gaming uh, economy, honestly. And I think what we like to view ourselves, you know, we've, we've had a lot of deep experience in the gaming industry and, and we're using things like blockchain and, and some of these new concepts to really kind of uh, change how ownership works in games and bringing players and content creators directly into the transaction. And we believe it's going to open up just all types of new design principles of how video games can be made that we think will ultimately kind of dominate games over time. That's great. So you are a gaming studio, right? You, you actually go and develop these games. We, we do. So, so our, our background is, so we, we've made a lot of games ourselves. So I, I'm a formerly, I was formerly a studio head at Activision. So I worked on the Call of Duty franchise. We, we worked on about four of the Call of Duties um, on the development side. So we were actually involved in kind of making the game. And then I had my own game studio called Seismic Games. There was a partnership with with a couple with a you know, couple of other founders as well. And and we built it was mostly a mobile game studio. So we built a game called Marvel Strike Force um, with Fox, and uh, that game you know did incredibly well. It's still I think a top twenty five uh, mobile game these days. And we ended up selling that company to Niantic. So we've had a lot of a lot of experience on the game development side. Mythical Games is a little bit more of a platform at the, at the essence. So so we really have this kind of economic engine we've been building to pr- provide the ownership and provide all these new um, kind of utility of how, how to build games. But uh, we also have a we're partnering with studios to build games. So we do have a game of our own called Blanco's Block Party that we've been uh, been working with a studio out of the UK to help us build. Yeah, so you both develop your own independent games, and then you also develop games for studios. That's right. So, well, well we build our own games uh, that, that use our tech. So we have one game right now, and we'll probably do another game in, in, in the you know, next couple of years. We're, we're not trying to be prolific on, on the games we do. We want to bring out games that we think can really bring these concepts of ownership to the mass market in a very unique and, and, and kind of positive way. So those are the games we do ourselves. Outside of that, we're actually looking at licensing our technology to other big game studios. So we're kind of focused on the bigger, the bigger games out there, kind of the well-known games of how they can kind of use this palette of tools to bring uh, this new economy into their games as well. Yeah, interesting. So let's talk about that for a second, John. So why do big gaming studios need to come to you to develop their games? What is it about your technology that's different than what they're doing? Yeah, so so I think I think the first thing that we've 
what's interesting about gaming game studios in general is honestly game studios are trying to do so much and they're always trying to move the needle there's so many pieces behind a video game right from networking stacks to gameplay engines physics engines audio engines uh you know animation systems animation you know art pipelines all of these amazing pieces that go into making a video game so i think honestly studios are always looking for ways to outsource and in fact if you look at um, you know, most video games, big video games a long time ago used to have their own game engines. They would all built, build their own entire game engines because that was the way they could uniquely get their vision to the consumer, right? But what's happened these days is, is most games now are going to either Unity or Unreal because those tools now can be outsourced and they can now focus on other aspects of their game. So that's kind of an important concept around how game studios seem to work. And they do the same thing with physics engines or audio pipelines or network stacks, things like that. So, so what we're doing is we're basically looking at how can we provide all this, this basic kind of like, so we call it an engine. It's really kind of this platform around the economy, right? And there's a lot of things that go into that. And, and so, so one thing we kind of joke about is we, we, love, uh, we love video games, but we don't love them enough to go to jail over, right? So, so, so we want to basically make sure that we've attached all the regulatory aspects, right? Which anytime you start having ownership in games, there's new regulatory things to think about, right? And I think that's where we, we are really excelling is that we've spent now two years uh, working with regulatory agencies, you know? So we worked with each individual state in the United States. We worked with the EU countries. We worked with most of the APAC. And we're starting to work with a lot of South American countries now to make sure that we're also having this base concept of regulated ownership, right? So the players can actually buy and sell, but do it in a way that's, that, that follows kind of uh, country law, right? Um, does that make sense in terms of kind of- yeah yeah it does and one of the things um, that I always find especially fascinating about the gaming industry is I think it's one of the few industries where you tend to see the the bigger players outsource a lot of the work right like you said yeah you know big gaming studios are looking to outsource probably even more than they do right now exactly. I think. In- Pretty much every other industry, typically you see, you know, the Googles of the world and so forth looking to acquire and bring more and more, you know, functionalities and capabilities in-house, while in, in gaming it tends to work quite differently. That's right. That's, that's, that's exactly right. And I think you see a lot of these companies that kind of kind of play Switzerland, right? They, they stay pretty independent for a long time because they're just providing core tech that, that applies to a lot of game studios. And that's kind of the big thing we're looking at. So it's not only just the regulatory side as well, it's also the concept of having these secondary markets, right? So if you allow players to buy and sell, then you end up having two economies, right? You have the primary economy, which is this nearly a $200 billion global industry now. It's been growing at just a rapid pace in terms of the primary sales. You know, you buy a consumer buying items from the game, they're buying them from the game developer themselves. But then as soon as you have the concept of ownership, you end up having this secondary economy, this secondary marketplace um, where players can buy and sell. And, and honestly, the tech behind that is to create an efficient marketplace and think about things around, you know, honestly, everything from money laundering to fraud to um, efficient, you know, market making. There's a lot of core non-gaming principles there that uh, require a lot of technology. So I think that's, that's again, why, we, why we're looking at building this engine is building this tech and building the marketplace and the regulatory side from with, with a heavy game development perspective, we think is going to be a very interesting uh, opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's really exciting. So, so let's talk about that a bit more for a sec. So, why is player ownership so important in the gaming space, John? Can you talk more about that and how it typically worked as opposed to what you're 
doing right now? Definitely, definitely. So, I mean, honestly, if you look at, I mean, again, the game, the, the primary market, um, it's a big market, right? There's $200 billion spent. I'm kind of rounding up. It's probably going to be about 180, 185 this year, but it's ahead of schedule, right? It keeps growing faster than analysts even predict. So we're closing in on 200 billion. And if you think about it, what, what people are buying right now is they have no, that's not really a tangible asset. It's a $200 billion of intangible assets. And kind of in other words, players are buying $200 billion of personal satisfaction, right? Because you don't have any ownership when you're done with it. You're, you're, you're really, it's an entertainment type product. And we think that's really awesome. And we, we love that. And we spend a lot of that money ourselves. But what we found is that, you know, kind of thinking about the principles of this is that if you can suddenly turn that intangible asset into a potentially tangible asset for a player, it kind of changes a lot of things for them, right? So, so one, it kind of changes their mindset in terms of, you know, there's no buyer's remorse. You could always sell it later, right? And this is not necessarily a, a play to, get rich quick in video games. That's not really what we're in it for. What we're in it for is to start letting new game economies come out of that, right? So so there's a lot of stakeholders now in the world, right? It's no longer just the, the gaming industry was very primarily was game studio, game publisher, consumer, right? It was kind of three mm-hmm. parties in that transaction. These days, you have so many more stakeholders that are getting involved. You have brands, right? So you have big brands out there that are wanting to get reach their audience within video game worlds. You have uh, esports teams, right, that are being competitive and, and producing content for their, you know, kind of their affiliation. You have influencers, both celebrity influencers that might want to get uh, reach their audience in a video game environment as well, like the brands, as well as these gaming influencers. People like Ninja become, you know, global stars because they have this tremendous audience of and, and building content as well. So you have all these different groups. And then you also have other groups like, like artists, you know, artists from, you know, street art or artists in our case, we're, we're working with vinyl toy artists. These, these make vinyl toys uh, for a living and we're giving them a new ecosystem to produce art and contribute into. So, so as you get all of these stakeholders combined and you kind of start combining that with the ability for players themselves to become content creators, it, you kind of need an environment like this for people to kind of start start having a new way of, of how you think about games and 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 what that means, right? So we, we think there's going to be some really interesting opportunities to where players can become entrepreneurial in games themselves. And they're already spending so much time in these worlds. We, we love the idea of kind of bringing some of that back to the player. Yeah, absolutely. And you touched on that briefly earlier. So I was always curious about player ownership in games, right? And how you can democratize that, which sounds like is exactly what you guys are doing. And one of the pushbacks I always got, and I'm just curious how you're um, addressing that, is that it's an opening for money laundering, like you said earlier, right? And oh, if, if we really give people complete ownership over these digital assets that they buy via games, then, you know, potentially they might trade drugs and so forth using these platforms. How are you addressing that? And how do you make sure that, you know, it's not an opening for illegal activity? No, I think that's a great question. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, honestly, there has been a lot of that in the past. And even, you know, what's, what's really fascinating, Summer, is that, is that player, players find a way to sell, right? And, and you, what you see is you have billions of dollars spent on things like eBay or, um, you know, just gray markets that pop up from time to time. Um, and, and I think what, what's, so, so pe- players are finding ways to, to do this. Um, the problem is, is that it is, it's fraught with you know, money laundering and fraud. And you don't know as a consumer, if you buy an asset there, if you're ever going to see it, right? Did I just lose my money and get, you know, and, and because it's not a legitimate transaction in the game, right? 
Um, on the other side, frankly, you have the game developers that kind of hate those because one, it's kind of bypassing the way they design their economy in the game. So it can really add a lot of problems to the game of people either shortcutting that experience or just doing things that could cause hyperinflation in games and things like that and kind of destroy the game for the general populace, right? So we've seen a lot of that already happen. What we think is interesting about the, the money laundering is, is this is kind of goes back to why, why game companies won't all build it themselves. There's a lot to do with that, right? There's things like KYC, AML, uh, so we, we're working with companies around identifying that. We're building out systems that allow um, play game companies to kind of specify levels of selling. So maybe you step it up with tiers. Um, so, so you kind of have this flexibility between making it very easy for consumers to participate, but also protecting consumers and protecting money laundering as you go. So maybe there's a tiered step up in terms of how much you can sell versus how much information you have to give to kind of clear that you're legit, right? Things like that are all go into that engine. Um, and then on top of that, we actually, we haven't announced it yet, but we're working with a large financial organization. So this is a company that it's a very household name, but they're, they're kind of working with us to get into the gaming space using their technology for financial transactions. And we're applying that to that same concept of digital asset transactions. And what that allows you to do is it starts allowing you to look at irregular trading patterns, right? So just like you look at in a stock exchange or a commodities ex exchange, they can help detect irregular trading patterns. So there's all these types of things that we've been doing. And, and because we're focused solely on this concept, we can really go deep in this where another game company might not be able to afford the time or effort um, or cost, honestly, of kind of going deep around these topics. So we, we're definitely focused heavily on, on these, these topics. Hmm, that's really interesting. So you're applying basically best practices from completely different industries. We are, yeah. You're doing in order to identify and prevent fraud and illegal activity. And I think that's exciting too. I think, like I said, I think you're, you're exactly right. We, we're lifting a lot of concepts and frankly, a lot of people from financial trading organizations. We're looking at things like ticket ticketing organizations, you know, groups that have been selling tickets for live events, right? They have a lot of really fascinating practices that can be applied into this. We're also looking at things like the sneakerhead culture, right? In terms of like, how are, how are high-end fashion brands selling out items in 15 minutes, right? It's a lot of it's about scarcity principles and, and how do you bring that into the world of gaming that really hasn't seen that type of economy before. So there, it really is kind of pulling best practices from people that are doing it really well in a lot of different industries right now. So we're, it's, that makes it a lot of, very interesting as well. Yeah, that's really cool. Can you talk a bit, John, about the business model? Like, how do you monetize? Definitely, yeah. So obviously, with our first game, we have this game called Blanco's Block Party. Um, and that's our first game that's coming out. It's a, it's a kind of a mass market game. We, 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 put, you know, we own the game, and, and we've, uh, we've, it's built on our engine. Um, and, and, and I say an engine, I mean economic engine, not necessarily a game engine. We're using a, a standard game engine, but we've built our economic engine on top of that. The, that game kind of monetize, uh, monetizes very much like a traditional game, right? So we get a primary economy, but we are also building a lot of those concepts. So the secondary economy is very um, prevalent in the game, right? So players can actually participate. Content creators can participate in a pretty big way. So we love that concept because we can pull, pull all those levers. And frankly, we can learn a lot by operating our own game on the technology. Our core business over time is going to be licensing that tech out to other big game studios. And we, we've been in conversations with probably, you know, seven or eight games at this point. And there, it's early days, to be real honest. Uh, we're, we're still kind of figuring it out with everybody. But, but we're kind of big, we're working to bring, our, our goal is to bring this tech into some of the biggest games in the world. And, and that's where 
I think the concepts get really exciting for not just us, obviously, because we, we get a nice cut of everything, which is awesome. But but it, it becomes very interesting for game developers because they have a new revenue stream that can be very, very sizable, right? As well as it starts becoming really fascinating for all of these, what we think will become millions of content creators over time, because they have more every time we bring out another game with a tech, they have a new opportunity to sell their craft, right? Whether it's their brand, their influence, or their art, or, you know, whatever it is, right? It, it just gives, it gives more opportunities for the ecosystem. Do you get any pushbacks or, I guess, concerns around if I'm running a gaming studio? I mean, I do lose a certain amount of control by allowing people who are playing the game we develop to now and trade it on a secondary market i guess that's that's a very novel concept but i wonder how do you yes you know how do you communicate the value proposition explain all the advantages that you just talked about as opposed to being used to the way things work right now no that makes makes sense that's a great question so i'd say there's kind of two main things right now one is that um, it's not a one size fits all type model, right? And I think that's honestly, it's what I love is I love when you have a concept of an engine or, or a SaaS type offering that you can go to five different game developers, big game developers that might have, you know, hundred million dollar or a billion dollar games. And you can talk to them about the concept and they come up with different utilizations of how it would fit with their game. Those are the things I get really excited about. And, and so I think that's the first thing is I think game developers will use it in, in different ways, right? Some of them might cater to esports. Some of them might be trying to get to more of a, a controlled UGC. Some of them might just be trying to create, um, you know, ways for brands to interact with that game and kind of lower their marketing costs, right? So there's a lot of different use cases, but they're all principally based on the same concept, right? So, so I think that's the first step. The other step we do, and this is the part that, that we've get, gotten a lot of support, and obviously the content creators get very excited, is the way we've kind of built this is that anytime a transaction happens, whether it happens in our game or frankly, if it happens in another third-party marketplace, right? And we built the tech so that it can really be open, right? We can uh, an item could sell um, in a video game, it could sell on the web, it could sell in a in a in a marketplace that, that somebody else owns. And anytime that transaction happens, we can take a fee out of that. And and when we take a fee out of that, that fee comes goes back to the game developer. It can also be split with the content creator. It can be split with the partners in terms of like where you know was it on the Xbox and then it sold on to you know it sold on to a, you know whatever uh, you know Google or something like that. So so you can really kind of cut that fee down. So what ends up happening now is game developers do have more control. Um, they can also they can really kind of build it however however they feel the need to right. So it could be fully curated. It could be fully internal. Um, so it's just a couple partnerships that they're bringing out from time to time, but they want to they want to give that back. And and, the, and, and then what will happen is it, it starts driving true residuals for the first time in games. Right. So if I have an item, let's say I'm I'm uh, I'll just make up something here. I'm uh, Ninja. Right. So I'll use him because he's he's the easiest one to, to, to know in the gaming industry. So if I'm Ninja and I create an asset in the game. And let's say I, I put it into, you know, I do a deal with Fortnite, which he's done. He's going to get paid kind of one time or, or, you know, kind of a lump sum for his contribution, right? And, and with this new engine, what can happen is he can get paid up front for whatever sells. But let's say those items, let's say he sells 10,000 items to 10 million players, right? So it's a limited edition item. You have 10,000 of them. Six months later, the value of those to consumers could be hundreds or even thousands of dollars a piece, Right. And what happens is, is in, in a normal game or in a gray market, the game developer is not getting a cut of that future value. 
and neither is the content creator. But with the tech and the way we're kind of using this blockchain to track everything, we, he gets a cut no matter what it happens. So he, he could end up finding that the, 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 the residual over the next four years of players trading that back and forth could actually make a lot more money than even the upfront sale. So it becomes, it starts really showing the value back to um, the content creators to their contributions in a true way. Can you talk a bit about how many users you have? Yeah, so we're still, still early. Um, so we, we haven't, the game actually, we just actually uh, recently announced that the, the game is going into beta on November 17th. So we, we've done alpha tests. We've had players in the game. We've been testing the game for quite a while now. But the, the first, uh, the, those have been mostly gameplay tests, right? Like, do they like the game? Do that, does the game make sense? How do those things work? Um, and so, so now what we're kind of moving towards is, okay, let's get the game into players' hands with a real economy. So that's going to be happening November 17th. We do have founder packs on sale. And it's a, kind of an interesting concept around um, ownership in games and players that have the ability to eventually be able to sell these items um, you can sell items before the game comes out, right? Because they own these items. And so we've actually seen now uh, with, with, a, with the founders packs out, um, you know, we're, we're, there's, there's a lot of people now that are transacting even before the game's out. And so what will happen now is the game will come out on November 17th. We will start bringing a lot of players into that game. It's coming out on PC into a beta, and then we'll kind of have additional milestones from there. So we, we, uh, we're seeing transactions, but we will soon see them, seeing them actually in the game um, through the beta. Got it. And what about the platform? So the platform is operating behind the scenes. So we do have that all working. Um, and we, we will, like I said, we've, we've actually, as, as of now, we have assets that are actually tokenized. So every asset that's been purchased in that pre-sale is tokenized. Uh, it's numbered, it's serialized, and it's sitting on our own blockchain right now. So it is kind of waiting for players to go into the game. And when they go into the game that first day, their items they've already purchased will be sitting there waiting for them. And at that point, so that's the first step. And then we'll introduce abilities to sell. We're going to be very, we're going to kind of roll this out in pieces in terms of the ability to sell. Because again, the, the real concept is, is you want to have an efficient marketplace to truly um, make it work, right? So we're, so we're going to do, we'll do, you know, kind of a series of tests and kind of supply and demand to bring more and more sellers and buyers into that secondary market with the game. Right. And for listeners who might not be familiar with it, um, what do you consider a tokenized asset? Yes. yes. So, so a tokenized asset, basically what we're doing is our, game, our engine basically transacts still in real currency, right? So if a player owns an asset and they say, hey, I want to sell this for $50 US um, and it sells, they're going to get a, you know, a portion of that $50 US, right? So minus the transaction fee from that sale, they're going to get the balance of that in real money. Uh, same thing could be applied to you know euros or or you know yen or kind of whatever currency it is, but it's actually taking place in the actual in actual real fiat currency. However, we are using the blockchain technology behind the scenes to really track that, right? So everything's written to a blockchain um, that basically provides us with transparency. We can decentralize that more and more over time, and it gives us you know gives kind of a trust and transparency in this immutable you know ledger technology to to one make sure that. The transfers and all that are very secure, and we have a we have a strong mechanism to make that happen. But also to pro frankly provide a very strong audit trail, right? So eventually, if you have millions of, of stakeholders against billions of transactions, you can let you know you can let a Marvel or a Nike or a, you know whoever whatever brand they can they can query the blockchain themselves and see absolutely every single transaction that occurred, right? And that's that's where so that that section is live. That 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 process is is being tokenized. So literally, we wanted from the very first character in our game ever sold, we wanted to make sure that was um, 
recorded in this kind of immutable ledger tech, right? Yeah, that's really exciting. I mean, what I really like about that is you're taking this piece of technology that you know a lot of folks are talking about and you're applying some real use cases for it beyond just what we typically see speculative nature of trading different the beautiful thing about blockchain is 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 it's really built around owner i mean the concepts and principles of blockchain are trust and transparency and all that so it's yeah. built around the same concepts that you want to bring out so i get the question a lot around do you need blockchain right now to make this happen um not technically we, we technically don't we could probably build a centralized uh, market if we wanted to and and have all that going but where we believe now is that as you get into hundreds of thousands or millions of stakeholders, and again, into, into hundreds of millions or billions of transactions, we think the blockchain, even though it's a little bit of overhead initially, um, we really do think it's it's great long term for the health of the ecosystem. Um, and, and we think that's kind of our contribution. Again, I think back to blockchain, I think, to be really honest, I think we're, 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 we're trying to shift gaming, but we want to make sure it's it's very understanding to consumers um, it's understanding to game developers, but it's also it's also using blockchain, right? So we, we have kind of this um, challenge to where we want to make sure it's great for people that love blockchain, but it's also great for the general consumer, right? So <laughs> right. I think it's, it's kind of an ongoing battle a little bit to make sure we we kind of follow that very tight, fine line to make sure it caters to both. Yeah. And I think that's a challenge that's pretty common for a lot of teams that are building on top of blockchain just because... Okay. Yeah, a lot of folks more broadly beyond the blockchain bubble don't necessarily fully understand the advantages of it, which leads to that question you just mentioned about why are you building on top of blockchain to begin with? How are you thinking about getting the word out and you know making sure that folks are aware of uh, your game once you launch it in November? Do you have a marketing budget in place? We do. We have a pretty big marketing budget. We have a very experienced team that's from the game industry, you know, and, and we've been quickly catching them up on blockchain. And, and what's honestly, what's what's really exciting about this company, Tomer, is that we have deep game knowledge, but everybody at the company has built games, right? So we're not necessarily trying to build, you know, uh, I mean, we're not in it to just build another game. What we're all in it to do is we all see the the ability and importance to kind of bring this new concept to market. So what I love is that we have people from our you know PR team or user acquisition team to our engineering team to our you know whatever like they they all um, generally have a deep knowledge of of gaming in some some fashion. But we've really been kind of getting everybody up to speed on the blockchain side. So again, I, I think it's it's really exciting on that. And from a marketing perspective, what's great is because we have gone with kind of traditional game first, um, you'll see a lot of things about Blancos out there that you would never, I mean, you'll never hear about blockchain, right? Because you don't really need to talk about it. You know, uh, you just need to talk about what blockchain brings to the to the player, right? It's basically, oh my God, you can have this asset now, you can level them up, you can change them, you can customize them, and then you can sell them for real money. That's what the consumer needs to know. We don't really talk a lot about blockchain to that, to that audience. Now there's other people that are very advanced in blockchain, and we'll, we'll share a little bit more about what we're doing or what that means to them. But but that's kind of one, one of the key things. And what that's resulted into is, for example, we, we kind of announced the gameplay of the game in June, and we did it with IGN. We did it with PC Gamer. And I think we're the probably the first big big game, uh, I, I don't know of another one out right now, that that is getting that mainstream press, right? So, so we're able to market the game through the mainstream because it's not a blockchain game, so to speak, right? It's a game that uses blockchain behind the scenes. So that really helps out with marketing. And we can follow a lot of the marketing paths that we know very, very well um, on how to market a game without 
without having to kind of go down this this technical path of blockchain. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And you know, as an as an investor, right, whenever I talk with entrepreneurs in the blockchain space, what I always tell them is, you know, talk about challenges and the problems that your users are facing that you're addressing. And how do you do that and which sort of technology you're using behind the scenes? I'm not sure yeah. they care so much, right? They don't care. I mean, you know, I was giving the example of Uber, right? I mean, you press a button and three minutes later, the car arrives. How do they do that exactly behind the scenes? Do you really care as a user? I, I love that you brought that up. And, and I've used a similar example. My example is kind of AWS cloud computing, right? No one cares where you're hosting your cloud, you know, the cloud or which cloud you're using or whether it's AWS or Google Cloud or Azure, you know, they care about it working and providing them fast, reliable. And I think, I think honestly, it's one of the challenges with blockchain is that if, if you went to a website and you had to first go get an AWS account as a consumer, and then every single time um, somebody, you wanted to go and add an item to your shopping cart, you had to go back to AWS and authenticate that as a consumer. E-commerce wouldn't be what it is today, right? So, so really, I, I really view, I mean, we, a lot of people view blockchain as kind of this way of life and it's awesome. And I think it's, it's exciting because anything that brings that type of emotion can show what, how changing it can be. But at the end of the day, blockchain is a technology, right? And it's, it's a technology that we need to make sure um, is usable as a technology rather than kind of this way of life. So I think we try and try and view it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I'm as bullish about blockchain as you can get, and I'm super excited, obviously, about the the industry as a whole. But I think it's really important to not lose sight of blockchain just enables a bunch of new use cases that you couldn't solve for them before, right? Like the ability to transact peer-to-peer without a middleman and, you know, for it to be fully secure. You talked about, you know, the audit trail and so forth. By the end of the day, these are problems and you're solving them. And, and it's important kind of not to lose sight of that and talk about uh, the technology itself. I think you're exactly right. I, 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 love, I love your analogy with Uber. I think that's perfect. Is, is, that's exactly right. Is that, um, you know, I mean, and, and it, it's challenging, you know, because like I said, I, I, I view myself as a you know, fairly advanced, you know, blockchain cryptocurrency user, right? I've, I've traded a lot. I have enough that I, I track it and do tax reports and all, you know, that type of stuff. Um, so I definitely do more than just like a Coinbase account. But even even knowing exactly what's happening behind the scenes, I still have challenges sometimes to where I'll send you, if I were to send you $100 in Bitcoin, I'll hold my breath for about 30 seconds to make sure it goes through, right? <laughs> right. And, and the fact that I do that, it definitely means that, you know, an average consumer that might not care about blockchain or trading cryptocurrency, they're going to have no idea what that means. You know, like, what do you mean it didn't show up? What do you mean I need to know what a private key is? What do you mean I, if I lose that, somebody can take everything I own, right? It's just, it, it has to get friendlier from the consumer side. And I think until then, there's a lot of things we can do in terms of, you know, custodial accounts until you're advanced and and really trying to apply it behind the scenes as a tech, tech layer, right? Now, now again, I think there'll be a lot of blockchain people that are upset at me because of that, because there are a lot of principles and people that want to have ownership of their keys. They feel that's the advantage of blockchain is I, there's nobody touching my keys. And that's awesome. And, and we're, not, we're not against that. We just think that if you looked at it, we kind of did this in free-to-play free games as well, to where 95% of a free-to-play game, they just play the game. 
5% actually interact and buy something, right? But 95% just play the game. I think the same thing is going to happen in blockchain is that if you have a, a, a player-owned economy, 95% of the people are just going to play the game because that's what they're used to. That 5% of the ones that actually... Um, you know, we'll start interacting in a bigger way. And frankly, there's a subset of that that's going to care about their private keys. And we're, we're working at ways to say, okay, if you're a really, really advanced user, then yeah, well, let, let's write it to a mainnet. Let's put it into your account. But I, don't, I think that's going to be the minority versus the majority for, a, for quite a long time still. If someone can solve that 30 second <laughs> scale that you talk about, please let yeah. me know, right? Like, would love to, to, to talk with you if you're working on <laughs> something to solve that. <laughs> I think there's actually some really interesting announcements too. Though. I mean, I think, you know, obviously seeing Square Cash App get into the space and people are now, you know, blockchain, but they're not dealing with private keys and all that. Uh, a lot of people hate that model. A lot of people that are pure blockchain don't like that model. And I know, you know, PayPal just announced uh, recently that they're, they're getting into the space too, and people are very, very upset um, that are hardcore. Most people are like, oh my God, this is great. 300 million people are going to be introduced to the concept of holding and, buy and, and, and holding a digital currency, right? Um, which they've kind of already done. It's just now digital currency backed by blockchain, right? I mean, PayPal is a digital currency essentially behind the scenes, right? So, so I think, but what's interesting is that the core blockchain group kind of hate on it. They're like, yeah, but they didn't do this, and I can't transfer it to this, and I can't, um, I can't own my own keys. You're right, but overall, I think it's great steps for the industry in general, right? As you get more people comfortable, then more people will care about some of the more advanced and, frankly, exciting parts of blockchain, right? So it's it's all baby steps, I think, in, in getting there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way to get to mass adoption and raise awareness is only through stuff like that, in my mind. You know, you got to get the big players involved. And I think the PayPal announcement is a huge positive development for the space. Yeah, definitely. So what's next for you guys, John? Like, uh, what's what's next on your roadmap? Anything in particular you're excited about? We are, yeah. So I think there's there's quite a few things I think we're excited about. One is one is obviously really getting the game. So so again, we we've we've gotten the game announced. We've gotten the game into players' hands to test gameplay. We learned a lot, which you know every game goes through. Um, you know, we're getting now we're getting close to getting the game in the, into people's hands with the economy turned on, and then we'll start be doing we'll start doing all these secondary market type tests, right? Whether it's in the game or it's on a web or it's with in integrations with third party markets, we're really really excited about that. And we have a couple of those we can't quite announce yet, but we do have some really big traditional companies that are kind of using us to get in the space, and 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 we love that. We love that as a contribution as well. If we can bring big companies that might not already be in the blockchain space. As, and they view us as kind of a safe bet because it's still done in, in real money. It's still, you know, that type of thing. It's still kind of kind of cleared with, with money they understand rather than tokens or all that. We think that's a great win. So we're excited to bring a lot of these things out. A lot of these things will be rolling out literally like every few weeks coming, coming forward or every few months coming forward. So I'd say the next six months for us is going to be just a fun thing after a fun thing because we're bringing these concepts now because we have this foundational game that we can use as a stage for these 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 uh you know these experiments let's say um we're going to be able to bring a lot of those out so that's exciting we also are starting to talk to quite a few groups around uh the licensing side and i think that's going to be a great side of our business and we haven't announced too much about that but we're, we're definitely heading down that path and we've had just you know seven or eight just amazing conversations of 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 learning about how this can start affecting other big franchises out there so that that gets exciting as well yeah when did you start working on mythical games? 
Yeah, so I started in, it started in 2018. So so basically, right after I sold my company to Niantic, they bought my last company. As soon as we did that, I literally jumped right into this concept. And it, it's a it's a concept I've been passionate about for a while. I mean, again, I think I think the the thing that kind of woke me up to it is what well, was CryptoKitties. I mean, I'd seen I've been in the blockchain. I've been trading cryptocurrencies. Yeah, I saw these things, these little cats out there, these little kind of <laughs> so keep the foodies got you excited. <laughs> yeah, well, what's interesting about it is 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 was really not. Was, was a couple things. One is that, um, you know, we started looking at, at concepts around like, um, you know, like if, if I were a free to play, if, I, you know, we make free to play games, so you kind of understand the value to a consumer and I'll, you know, I'll spend 20, $30 in a, in a free to play game often just to kind of support the developer or, oh, I want that one little item that, that'll make my game go a little bit more fluid. Right. But that's kind of the extent of what I spend. I spend, you know, not a, not a massive amount. I like to try and spend a little bit of little bits in a lot of games. Right. But then suddenly these crypto cats came or crypto kitties came out and, and suddenly I'm like, and next thing I know, I have like $600 of crypto kitties and I'm, and I literally am sitting there. I'm like, <laughs> what just happened? You know, like, that's not my, that's not my personality. Like, that's not what I would do. I just, $600 of digital, digital 2d art. Right. And I was like, what is happening here? And that's when it really kind of clicked on me that the concept of ownership really kind of is important. It's, it's important to the consumer's decision because now it's just not that I just threw $600 away and I'm not, I wasn't spending $600 to try and flip it and make 2000, but there's something about the idea that when you spend that $600, um, you have the option, right? Maybe I do make a profit on a few of them. Maybe I break even, maybe I can just sell them a year from now at, at a loss because I just want to get some, something back, right? There's something about that tangible, uh, concept that really does change change that. So that was why that really kind of hit me pretty early, and I'd been kind of obsessed with it, just kind of watching the space and and eating up the space. And, and there wasn't a whole lot out there. So we started thinking about like I started talking to to a co-founder Rudy Koch. So we worked together at Activision, and then he went to Blizzard and was working on World of Warcraft while I was doing seismic games. And we started. He hit me up, and he's like, "Have you have you thought about this blockchain stuff? And I'm like, oh my God, let's talk, you know, because it started just kind of hounding us around a lot of the concepts we've been wanting to do in games and, and studios that want to do in games, blockchain and, and, and these concepts can make it way, way easier over time. So that was kind of the first step. And then I reached out to another uh, great friend of mine named Jamie Jackson, who was, he was another studio head at Activision and uh, um, kind of threw out the idea. And honestly, I think he had just moved from the UK to Seattle to kind of retire. I think he was kind of, he put out, you know, guitar hero and DJ hero and he worked with me on a Skylanders game. And so we started talking to him and he's like, God damn it, John, I, I think I'm out of retirement now. I think I'm coming back. So, so we, we kind of quickly put together a company and raise money to, uh, to kind of put this, to put this concept together. So that's really kind of hit it from us is we, we can we came about this idea from our industry experience, but just saying, Oh my God, this could be amazing for the industry. Why don't we, bring it into our industry rather than kind of trying to get our industry into the blockchain industry, if that makes sense, you know? And that was really, yeah. Yeah. Whenever you talk to someone and he says like, Hey, I need to come out of retirement to walk, to start working on this. That's probably a good sign. Really good. I think we, we really have had a couple of them. Um, you know, our general counsel was, uh, 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 Greg is, you know, he was formerly the GC at, uh, at Activision Blizzard for like 12 years. I think he was the, the head of legal at Activision. So, um, you know, and he, he had worked with the founders of Oculus and he definitely doesn't need to work again, but, but we started talking to him. He started helping us out. And finally he's like, you know what? I 
I want to do this full time with you guys. So it's like, yeah, come on board. Let's do this. You know, so we've been able to kind of get a lot of great people that just have tremendous knowledge of the industry because we're doing something different. Right. And I think it's, yeah, I agree. Bringing somebody out of retirement is always a great sign that the, you're, you're onto something. So that was really kind of how we started. And we've added just amazing people. We had, you know, Pete Hawley and, and as an executive recent, uh, not recently, he's been here for a while now. So he was with uh, Zynga and EA and, and Telltale and all these amazing companies. And he's, he's made some of the most amazing games in the world. He joined us as, as our chief product officer. We had Jeff Poffenbarger, who was, uh, he was, uh, you know, he, I think he's probably published more games than any of us. He did all the Tony Hawk games and he did all the Skylander games. And he, he was re- most recently at Oculus. He was the studio head at Oculus with Facebook and we grabbed him and, and brought him back into it as our COO. So it's, it's uh, you know, what's funny is we actually have kind of four former studio heads in, in one team, which, you know, for a lot of people, that could be a recipe for a disaster, <laughs> having four, four studio heads in one company. But it, it's so beautiful for us because we all have kind of different areas of focus, yet we've all kind of shipped games, right? And we've all shipped a lot of games, right? we have a lot of you know, big games. So it, it's really nice having kind of that expertise in our DNA and in our blood while we're all kind of building different parts of this organization. So you've been working on mythical games now for close to three years. Curious for entrepreneurs listening to this, what has been maybe one unexpected learning? I mean, obviously you have significant experience, you've sold the company before, you know how to do this. Has there been anything that surprised you since you started working on mythical games? Any key takeaway that maybe you can share? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I've, I've had four four previous startups before. And I'm sorry, this is my fourth startup I've had outside of working for Activision and other groups. Um, but so this is kind of my fourth big startup that I've been been working on. And, there, you know, what's interesting for us, I think the, the good thing for us right now is that almost every startup will have some, some big pivot point, right? Uh, they'll pivot the business model pretty greatly. And I think that's one thing we've actually been very lucky about is we haven't pivoted too much. You know, the original vision of what we set out to do is, is still kind of getting out there and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But we haven't had to fully redirect quite yet. You know, I mean, and that's that's you, know, you always kind of say I always say kind of quite yet because you never know what tomorrow is going to bring. Right. It's a startup. It's that's the whole startup life is you, you expect to pivot at some point. But things have been going really, really well for us. I think the biggest things for us, uh, a couple of things have been interesting. Um, one is is. I think the one challenge is that uh, gaming can can be a little bit of a toxic community sometimes. Uh, and it's partly just because people are so passionate about these worlds, right? So you get a lot of big opinions and and it's just it's just something you have to deal with. And what's really interesting too is the crypto crowd and the DeFi crowd and all that is a very, very um, you know, opinionated crowd as well. So I think for us is trying to get those two crowds to play together is always a little challenging. So I think that's definitely taken a lot of deep breaths, um, you know, trying to make sure we, we keep just kind of reiterating what our goals are and, 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 um, and making sure that we can kind of settle between those. I think that's been interesting. I think the other one for us is the licensing side of the business. You know, we've, we've had some great conversations and I can't mention who we're talking to yet, but we've had some great conversations with some of the biggest game companies out there. And honestly, we weren't expecting it. A lot of them have come to us partly because they, they kind of know who we are and they're like, okay, what are you guys up to? You know, it's literally, it's partly that. And we start talking to them and they start brainstorming like, oh man, that could actually work for this title. Um, but we didn't expect that to happen until clearly into 2021. And I think the, the reception about that's been really exciting. And I think for us, we've had to kind of think about, okay, well, how do we get that out a little bit sooner? Or how do we kind of twist that, twist our business model, our forecast to kind of, kind of adjust to that. 
um, the gaming industry moves really, really fast. So, so obviously we gotta, we gotta kind of, kind of move, move fast with it. Right. So I think that's the biggest thing has been really interesting to learn. Um, you know, for us also getting into some of these partnerships with these big financial institutions, one, it was very flattering that they wanted to talk to us. Um, um, and, and two, I think it shows, it was really interesting to see, um, you know, just how much people are watching the blockchain space in general and the concept of ownership and what that can do, um, you know, particularly in gaming for us. But I, I think it's been just really, really fascinating watching and talking to as many people as we can because um, there's there's something contagious about this, right? And I think we're trying to back some of them down and say, okay, we're not ready yet, not ready yet. But but kind of putting that foundation, I think, will, will result in some really cool stuff. So I think for us, it's been, it's been a little surprising in terms of how fast things have moved. Um, I, that's probably the biggest one for us, honestly. Yeah, things are moving so much faster these days, yeah, right? I mean, yeah. you see startups scaling so quickly, you know, when you compare that to even, you know, just five, seven years ago. I mean, there's just so much more capital right now. You know, the platforms are much better for you to scale on top of. And yeah, absolutely, things are moving much faster. And I guess on that note, curious for your take on fundraising. How much did you raise so far? So we've raised, we've announced, we've raised 35 million so far. Um, okay. And we have, yeah, we have a couple other deals out there. We have some continuations of that round we haven't quite announced yet that, that might kick in in the future here. But we've raised 35 million of venture capital. So it's, it's, a, it's a good amount of money for a startup for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Any, any best practices or any tips for entrepreneurs listening to this about how to approach fundraising and discussions yeah. with investors? Definitely, definitely. So I, I think, I mean, honestly, how we, how we started this, um, I mean, I've, we've been a little lucky. One of my big investors, um, you know, we happen to be an investor in Seismic Games. So they got a nice return out of my last deal. So that always helps a little bit. So I have a little bit of, I had a little bit of a history advantage on that one. Um, I think the biggest things though that, 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 that I've learned too, is that, you know, especially if you have an area of expertise, uh, lending that for free to VCs pays out in dividends in the future. And that's something I've been doing for quite a while with my career is that, you know, if I if I have knowledge of gaming or obviously not insider trading or anything like that, but if I have some type of, you know, just expertise that I can lend to them, I'll do that for VCs for free, right? I'll, they can call me up. We'll talk through it. I'll, I'll give my feedback on it. And it starts building those relationships really early. So a couple of things we, we did is that, you know, honestly, we raised money almost instantly after I sold my last company because I had been working with a, with a guy named Adam Strzok and he had struck capital. And I was just literally kind of a uh, a phone call for him. He could call me and say, Hey, what do you think about this deal? Or what do you think about this team? And I would do that for free. And then, and we've kind of built up a nice relationship there. So unfortunately VC can be very networking based. Right. And I think to me, to me, the advice I always give is try and be out there. Don't always see like, what can the VCs do for you, but try and be, what can you do for the VCs as well? Because it really does pay off big time later. Right. So that's the first thing. The second thing I think is, is making sure you go in with a really strong team. And I think that's one thing we've done very well is that we've been able to kind of pull together a really strong team. And that it makes all the difference in the world that, you know, I think you hear this a lot from VCs that they bet on the team first. So I, I think really making sure you surround yourself, not just with full-time employees, but also your advisory team, right. And, and building up a breadth of knowledge, right. So we have, we have one guy on, on our advisory. He, he is a game guy. We have um, a game entrepreneur. He's sold a couple companies in the game space. So that's, that's, that's the classic one. That's the go-to. But then we also have guys like we have um, we have an actor from The Walking Dead, you know, and, and he's he's a great, you know, <laughs> really? yeah, but he's he's one of a, you know, I've known him for a long time and we talked and and uh, um, a guy named Michael Cutlets, he's he's one of our advisors. Right. And he doesn't know as much about the game and, in, in, you know, workings, 
but he brings a lot of really interesting ideas to the table, right? And I love that. We have a guy that you know used to be the president of BAFTA. We have a lady that's a, a lady named Angela who um, is a big financial analyst, right? And she's now gotten into more NFTs and all that. So she's on our advisory panel. We have a guy that's, uh, he's written five game of the years, right? So again, not really necessarily directly focused on what we're doing, but just having that opinion group, I think matters a lot. And it's something that I like to do. I, I love diversity, obviously in my team, um, I think we're, we're very, very fortunate that we, we have, you know, for gaming, we have a very diverse team, which is awesome. I, we, you know, there's always better we can do, you know, but I, it's something gaming has a tendency to be, um, you know, not super diverse sometimes. And I think I, I really love that we've done that. But I also love diversity in investors and diversity in, in advisors and all that. So to me, that's the thing is surround yourself with amazing people. And the v, I hate to say it, but VCs watch that. They understand that, you know, and they get they get your efforts around that. So to me, that's the key is find the people that can really take take things forward and also don't be afraid to share you know share in the in the in the uh you know in the cap table let's say uh, i think that's one thing that a lot of people have if you go in as a single founder and you're going to keep you know try and keep 80% or 90% of the of the of the cap table you're going to have problems long term and i think it's much better to kind of have a strong team of people that you're kind of kind of you know splitting that up with a little bit more um, which I know, again, it's, it's just something I believe in. And I've always believed in that um, because I think it comes back to to pay itself again in dividends later. Yeah, absolutely. Also completely agree on that last one. Um, oftentimes startups end up with binary outcomes, right? So yep. 80, 90% of zero is still zero, right? That's exactly right. It's kind of a risk reward, right? I, I, think, it's, I, exactly. think, it's, I think it's actually more important to de-risk the business as much as you can then try and maximize the reward for yourself at the beginning, right? And I think it's just something I see it a lot. And honestly, it's it's I do some angel investing. I don't do a lot, but it's it is kind of a turnoff for me personally. Is that if you see that kind of single person that's going to run the show? I mean, come on, no one ever runs the show, right? Um, that's just not how it works, right? And I think honestly, the key to our success of why we've been able to move is we have such talented people behind it, and we try to try to spread that love as best we can, right? So, so we we have you know three co-founders, and we have an amazing executive team, and we have amazing employees overall. We're trying to give back as much as we can because that's really the way you win, you know. And I agree, it's it's way better to have a small percentage of of a big pie than a big percentage of zero, right? Which is where this often goes, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having a strong team is just so crucial. Building a startup is a pretty lonely place to be at, right? I mean, you know, having a capable team in place and folks that you can brainstorm with, I mean, it's just so crucial. Crucial, you know, for the founding team, forget about, you know, in discussions with investors, which obviously it helps quite a bit as well. Question before we wrap up, John. How do you go about your day-to-day right now in running the business, um, you know, during this pandemic? How did the pandemic impact the way you run the business? Is your team distributed? Did you fundraise over Zoom? Like, a- any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, a couple of things on that. So, so um, um, yeah, a couple of points on that. One is that, um, one, we're very fortunate, to be real honest. I mean, uh, the gaming industry has proven itself to be pretty recession resistant let's say not recession proof I, w- I wouldn't say it's a recession proof business but it is, it is a little bit more recession resistant right so we are very very fortunate in that aspect alone um the second piece though is that 
um, it does lend itself very well to be distributed. There's been certain aspects of our business that are really, really difficult. You know, getting user feedback early, early in the process. You know, we used to do at Activision and other companies, we do, you know, behind glass, you know, the double glass, you know, or you're, you're watching a panel play the game or play concepts and you can see that feedback and you can see that group. Right. We don't get that as well. We try to do that over Zoom and it's been pretty good, but there's been certain aspects of that that are tough. Obviously, I think you lose a lot of that, you know, bouncing an idea real quick against somebody else. But tools like Slack and I mean, obviously, you know, everything's connected through G Suite these days. And uh, it's it, where we live in a pretty interconnected world. So I think we're pretty good about that. We still try and kind of mostly hire around our, our core locations, but we're now starting to pick up people, honestly, wherever. And what's really fascinating is we have well over half our employees now we've never met which is uh, definitely a first for me. Wow. Um, but yeah, over half of our team uh, has never met before. Um, you may never met uh, in person. In person, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But we, but how, it's big, how big is the team, by the way? Uh, we're about 70, 75 people right now. Huh, and then we have another 40, yeah, another 40 on the game side. So about 115 total. But like, it's it's really crazy to where you feel like you know everybody super well. And you're like, wait a second, you're, you know, you're in Montreal or you're in New York or you're in Austin. <laughs> crazy. You know? But it, it, so I think the tools are good. You do get a little Zoom fatigue. Um, but we, like I said, we've been very fortunate. So I say we're, we're, we're going more distributed. Honestly, we, we don't have an office in LA anymore. We had an office, the lease expired in August, and we just kind of gave it up. And, you know, there's always talks about when do we get another one. But we're, you know, every single, it seems like every week we kind of push it off a little bit further, right? So we definitely want to have a central locations again. But it's just like, man, we're doing pretty well remotely. So I think it's getting used to that. And then making sure you check up on people. I think that's the biggest challenge for us. And we spend a lot of time with the HR team of like, just making sure we do have a lot of single employees that might be living at home by themselves, right? How's their mental health? How do we kind of deal with that? So mental health has definitely become a bigger topic than we've ever had before, you know, when you're at, in an office and just terms of making sure people feel connected. And if, you know, like I have a family, I'm very lucky. I have family and I have more pets than we know what to deal with. You know, so so my, my, my life, my home and life is, is very, very busy. Uh, but, but there's other people that just don't have that. So I think to me, that's the key is just making sure you check up on people and it matters, you know, it really does matter to people when you're checking up and making sure that they, you know, they're, oh, they're, yeah. they're okay, you know? I think we're just starting to see the the beginning of that over the coming months and certainly years, you know, as teams become more distributed. The other side of that, I mean, obviously there's a tons of advantages, but the other side of that is exactly what you just talked about, right? It's these mental health issues that I think are going to, be more prominent moving forward given that right. people yeah. yeah don't meet as often and I, think, I think also then that, you know you hear a lot of the big tech companies are like oh we're work for home forever you know and, and i think that i mean with some of the big companies that that works and i think it will work i think what we'll see is though there will be more and more fatigue now i don't think that people are going to go back to the same work schedule and we're even thinking about that right now you know jamie jackson our our, C, our chief creative officer and co-founder uh, he's really thinking a lot in terms of like he runs kind of this, he's up in Seattle and he and Pete are up in Seattle kind of running out of there. And they're kind of looking at, OK, well, when we people do decide to come back, whether it's six months or nine months or a year or whenever we kind of start getting back into that experience, what will it be like? It'll be different. Right. And and maybe people only come in a couple days a week or they only come in for half days. And, and I think we're, we're trying to embrace that. We're trying to embrace that all the way down to how do we run an office? So there's things you got to definitely think about. And we don't know the answers yet, but we're starting to at least try and put our heads together in terms of like, what, what do we think people are going to want when, when we return? Right. So I think yeah. that's, that's going to be, because I think it's going to be a different, I think for everybody in the world returning to work, 
well, I, I can't say that. I'm sorry. Uh, a lot of a lot of things, will, unfortunately, will work exactly as they are now. But but for a lot of businesses, especially in our space or in the tech space, when they return, it will be a different experience. And I think we got to embrace that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think anybody knows at this point how the new normal is going to look like, other than it's probably going to be different than what we've known before this pandemic started. Definitely. But whether it's going to be fully distributed or something in between, or maybe closer to what it was before, like probably gonna vary quite a bit yeah exactly exactly so john thanks so much for coming on the show really appreciate you taking the time to share your insights and really enjoyed that discussion thank you so much i, I really appreciate the time and and uh, i was very happy to talk so thank you thanks for listening if you like this episode of breakout startups i'd really appreciate it if you can rate review and subscribe to the podcast This only takes a few seconds and helps get the world out.